In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Kids that were just up here, one thing that I am glad for when I grew up is one thing that I am sad for you about, and it's this. When I was growing up, I had the distinct privilege of being able to wait every week for a new comic strip of Calvin and Hobbes. Did you ever, have any of you ever read a comic strip of Calvin and Hobbes? The, the kid is amazing. So here's the strip about end of summer. I can't believe it. Homework already. I just got back to school. I have to write a paragraph on what I did over the summer. A whole paragraph. I'll never be able to write that much. It's not fair. As he says to Hobbes, his friend, how's it coming? Not so good. What would you do besides watch television? It's Calvin, right? But, you know, that's beautiful. That's quintessential Calvin. Big word. But he also starts to get really deep at many times, such that here's a moment when he's in class and he says to his teacher, as his teacher says, if there are no questions, we'll move on to the next chapter. I have a question. Certainly, Calvin, what is it? What's the point of human existence? <laughs> I meant any questions about the subject at hand. Oh, Frankly, I'd like to have the issue resolved before I expend any more energy on this. <laughs> Deep. I want to know why I'm here. And three plus four does not tell me. And then, of course, under a cloudless sky at night with the stars bright before him, he looks up and he sees this and he wonders aloud. And then he screams out of the universe, I'm significant. And then he has a pause and an interior moment and he says, Screamed the dust speck. <laughs> Look, there was no other strip like Calvin and Hobbes. Here's the irony. Calvin and Hobbes ran for 10 years and went like gangbusters. And there was no sense in which you'd, like, you'd think, oh, that kinda, that's kind of tailing off. It's not going to work. It's not going to last. Sure enough, it lasted. And then all of a sudden, Bill Watterson, the comic strip illustrator, stopped. No warning. It was just done. And you hear the story that came out in an essay a few weeks ago about why. It was not because he was out of money. It was not because he was out of ideas. It was because he was hanging on for dear life. And the irony of it is, here's Calvin that I would like to suggest to you is a picture of joy and of peace. He has his moments where he's like, ah! But like, he's like this. He's wide-eyed, he's full of creativity, he's brilliant, he just loves to do stuff. It's, like, it's a picture of joy and of peace. But the guy that did it was not joyful and was not full of peace. In fact, by his own words, I was in a black despair. I was absolutely frantic. I had to publish everything I thought of, no matter what it was, and I found the idea almost unbearable. And then he goes on to say, I would go through these cycles of despair and elation based on the perceived quality of the strip, things that I doubt anyone else could see in either direction. I was, it was all a bit manic. He, he portrays this kid who is unflappable, who is, you know, full of, here's a big word, equanimity. He's just sort of, he loves it. He loves it. He's full of joy, and he's really much at peace. But that is as far away from what Bill Watterson was as he's doing it. He, he projects upon to Calvin the very heart he dreamt he had. And it wasn't there. And so he said, I gotta quit. I gotta go. This is killing me. As Andrew said, 
we have decided to pause for a little while and, and dig in deep about what we mean by the fruit of the Spirit that is by the Holy Spirit. Last week we talked about love. This week we're going to talk about two of the fruit of the Spirit. It's one fruit with many sections that are interdependent, interlocking, comprehensive. Today we're going to talk about two of them that you will hear Jesus and Paul kind of smush together, joy and peace. Calvin, as I've said, is a picture of it, which belies the truth of what Bill Watterson was, anything but. So the sort of tongue-in-cheek question I'm putting before all of us is, how do you find your inner Calvin when all it feels like is life is in the life of Bill Watterson? That's a question about the fruit of the Spirit and joy and peace. And now we're going to try to kind of dig, dig in deep about what it means. And we're going to listen to a passage late in a letter that Paul wrote to the church at Philippi. And we're going to consider what joy is and peace is and how to find it or how to prepare the ground of the garden in which then the Spirit can grow that up in us under three headings. Joy and peace of the Spirit are created by, or, and the conditions are found by, one is by reflecting, two is by resisting, and then three, kind of a dual move, by recalling and rehearsing. Those are the three heads. Reflecting, resisting, and then a paired recalling and rehearsing. Philippians 4, we'll start in verse 2. I wonder if you could stand. Philippians 4, starting in verse 2. <clears throat> I entreat Euodia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sit. He's not writing an essay. He's writing a letter, and that means he has a particular audience in mind, with particular circumstances in mind, with therefore a particular purpose in mind about why he is writing. And earlier in the letter, he is very frank. He'd been converted, he'd been called, he'd been commissioned to go tell the Gentiles about the gospel, and where is he now? He's in prison. Was not part of the plan. Feels a little stuck, or at least he could. And yet, while he's in prison, he sees his way in a different world based upon the providence of God. And he says, you know what? If I hadn't been in this prison, I never would have had the opportunity to make the gospel known to those that are with me and the prison guards and everybody else. So he's like, <laughs> yeah, the enemy or whatever you might say is in the way. Not really. There's opportunity here. But he's writing here at the close of his letter 
And he turns his remarks to something very personal. And he addresses his remarks to two people in particular, but not just them. To one Euodia and one Syntyche. Two women in the church who are playing a vital role in the church, who are contributing to the very beginning and vitality of the church in some form or fashion. That's all we know based upon what Paul has told us. They're sideways with each other. We don't know why. He doesn't say. But he's entreating them. I'm urging you. I'm begging you. Agree in the Lord. This is, not a, this is not a fight over personal matters. Apparently this has some sort of deep, substantive difference over some important matter within the life of the church. And they're sideways. And like any other system that you've ever been a part of, when two people in a family, in a community, in a church, in a business, in an organization, they get like this, it, it's never contained. It's always like the Titanic. The Titanic's bulkheads never went to the top. So when one compartment flooded, it began to spill over. That's just life. Two people get sideways, it has an effect. And that's why Paul is begging, not just with them, agree in the Lord. Come to a sense of what he has for you, and then come to a place of restoration between you. And he knows, because it's spilling over into the life of the church, if it's a church matter, the church got to get involved. And so he addresses others there, uh, Clement and This other person that we don't know if it's a description of somebody or if it's a particular person, he's calling upon them to help out. When a body gets cut, the whole body leaps into action. Platelets, macrophages to stop infection, platelets to stop the bleeding. People rush to the wound, and that's what Paul is asking to be happening right now. Something's up. If it doesn't get healed, it's going to break out and it's going to be worse. I'm begging you to come. And so in verse 3, he says, Help these women who have labored side by side with me. you got to get involved. It's a church matter. It's not just a Euodia and Syntyche matter. And here's where we get to perhaps his first word of counsel about how that's going to happen. What's going to have to be required here? What's going on? I don't know that you could say that what's plaguing the church in that moment is something as difficult as despair. They've, they've not all wrung their hands or going, why are we even doing this? They've got not that, got to that point, but there is a disruption. They are disoriented. And we're all disheveled in that way, innerly, inwardly and outwardly, and now something's got to give. And here's where Paul, in an attempt <clears throat> to bring restitution to that community, brings his first word of counsel to you. Because whether it's a matter of, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when, you will experience disruption where things will be disoriented. And the idea of joy and of peace sounds like something they say on Sunday, but it never gets out the door past Monday. What does he say? He reminds them of something that is true of everybody involved, when it's Euodia, when it's Syntyche, whether it's Clement, it's the whole church. He says in verse 4, all of you, your names are written in the book of life. And that's his way of saying this. What is true of you is something that cannot be taken from you. It's irrevocable. You have the favor and future of the Lord because of your faith in the faithfulness of Jesus. That's the gospel. If you are here and you go like, why am I here? Did I get lost? Who told me to come here? You're here to hear the gospel, among other things. That's the gospel. For those who have faith in the faithfulness of Jesus... You have the favor and the future of the Lord. Full stop, no qualifications. That's the gospel. 
That's what it means to have your name written in the book of life. There's a little phrase that we kind of quoted when things got really dicey during the pandemic and polarization and all that stuff, and we said, you and I, especially in the online world, especially in the political world, <clears throat> what happens to us? This is what happens to us. Making what we differ over more than what we share in common. Happens all the time. You're seeing it in real time all the time. You are sideways with people, probably, and you are making what you differ over more than what you share in common. I'm susceptible to that. I do that. You do that too. That's what's happening here. In Paul's mind, they are making what they differ over more than what they share in common. So he's like, I'm going to go back to what we share in common. Your names are written in the book of life. You've got to start there. That's where you begin to discover what it means to apply joy and peace into your world with the help of the Spirit. And he pushes it a little further. Because what does it mean to remember that, that your names are written in the book of life? It's what he says at the end of verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord. Always. Again, I will say rejoice. The remedy, the therapy, the medication, if you will, to attend to whatever is disoriented, disrupted, or despairing in you, it begins with rejoicing in the Lord. As soon as I say that, there are people in this room that think, wow, if I go to my doctor's office and he tells me that I'm sick and then says to me, be healed, you might be tempted to say something to your doctor or to gesture in his direction. Because what you think I just said was, if you're sick in any of this matter, be healed. I am, that would be a hasty interpretation, i.e., that'd be wrong. And that's not what Paul is saying. For him to say rejoice in the Lord is asking you to reflect. To reflect on what is true of you no matter everything else that is true for you in your moment. Whatever your disruption is, whatever your disorientation is, wherever you are tempted to despair, rejoicing in the Lord is the beginning. And that rejoicing is an act, first of all, of reflection. Okay. And here's... Kids, adults, believers, non-believers in the room, let's talk for a minute. What is joy? You know, um, Morgan Freeman and Jack Nicholson started us with the idea, and then we've got Steve Jobs, John Lasseter, at least there in Pixar, advancing the ball up a little bit what joy is. Let's talk about what joy is. What it is not is a constant state of elation. Everything's fine! What is it? Paul says this in Philippians 4, rejoice in the Lord. But you know what Paul also says to another church, in second, to the church at Corinth? He says this in chapter 6. We are treated as imposters and yet are true. As unknown and yet well known. As dying and behold we live. As punished and yet not killed. As sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Wait a minute. I thought joy was this constant state of happiness. This it's all good kind of mentality. How in the world can he be sorrowful and yet always rejoicing? How in the world can ever joy and sorrow live in the same world? Uh oh, Pixar's helping. I would like to suggest to you an image that I've been sitting with 
for a while trying to figure out what is joy? How should, what, what is an analogy for joy? And, and the image that came to mind was a buoy. Okay, uh, here are, are several kinds of buoys. There's a lot of them. Um, here's a picture of an iron buoy that is from a previous century. Don't remember what that was used for. Here's a picture of a buoy that washed up on, it's a gas buoy from 1915 during the 1915 hurricane in Galveston. I was not there at the time, but it's not far from where I live. And then, of course, you can't talk about a complete version of what, unless David buoy. <clears throat> I'll be here all week. What is a buoy? A buoy lives out in the sea. But a buoy does not live above the waterline. It's in it. It knows stormy seas and it knows calm seas. But that buoy is there. And it knows the experience of the undulation of the waves, of great tumult and storm and all that, as well as calm. It's there. It's always there. But the reason it doesn't capsize is because it's anchored to something that's greater than the storm. That's what a buoy is. This guy, actual picture, his name is David Soares. He's a Brazilian. On Christmas Day last year, he's out on his fishing boat, enjoying his Christmas. Have a holly jolly. Falls overboard. He's the only one in the boat. Boat drifts off. He can't swim to catch it. Dude's out in the sea, off the coast of Brazil. What am I going to do? He swims to the buoy. He attaches himself to the buoy. Two days later, they pick him up. They found his boat, not him. Like, where's David? Off goes the rescue party to find him clinging to a buoy. Rejoicing in the Lord is swimming to the buoy. The joy of the Lord, not just joy, not just be peaceful. I, I can't tell you to do that. Your circumstances may not change. They may never change. But to rejoice in the Lord is to swim to the buoy. In Hebrews chapter 6, author says this, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. He went before us. He died for us. He forgave us and reconciled us to the one who loves, is the lover of our soul. That's why he sent Jesus to begin with. His love for us did not begin when Jesus forgave us or died for us. His love began before eternity. That's the anchor. And you got to swim to it. I'm always kind of ambivalent about appealing to sports figures to illustrate. Not because they aren't human like me, not because they don't have the same struggles like I do, but obviously sometimes when it comes to disappointment in their lives, um, it usually has to do with a game. And look, we all know about disappointment, usually not in losing a game. Kirk Cousins, last year, quarterback for the Minnesota Vikings, uh, they won the division, they went 13-4, and four, and then uh, I think it was the first or the second round of the playoffs, they lose to the Giants. And he's one of the quarterbacks documented in that new show called Quarterback. <laughs> and... Here's the moment right after the loss to the Giants. Watch what he does. It's kind of a cruel reality of this business, but you know, it, it hurt to walk off of our field in front of our fans after the season we had and, and, and not win that game. 
Yeah, it hurts. It hurts. Um, I'm probably missing one, but this is probably the toughest loss I've had in my career. So it hurts. The plays that you go back and beat yourself up over is just uh, misery. There weren't a ton, but there were probably three. You feel like if you just have those three back, you might win the game. It's usually about this time when you start feeling all the pains from the game. You just walk around your house and you're like, ooh, that hurts. You comfy? All right, you should sleep well tonight because you didn't get a great nap and it's 9 o'clock. All righty. Ready to sing and pray? On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Jesus, thanks for uh, today. Thanks for protecting Dad in his football game and through this football season. And um, thanks for Mommy and for Turner, for the great family we have. And God, we uh, continue to just give the days ahead to you and trust you for uh, what's up ahead. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. He knows it's a game. But he knows it's a game. And he knows there's just something bigger. And even in that little moment, that little pattern, put the kids down, pray, sing, remember, he's swimming to the buoy. We have to learn how to swim to the buoy. And, and sometimes, if we're honest with ourselves, sometimes I don't have the energy to swim, and I need somebody who's on the buoy to throw me a line. That's your job, too. The threat of disruption and disorientation and despair is first of all answered by us rejoicing in the Lord, remembering what the anchor is, swimming to the buoy and holding. It's the first resource. The second is like unto it. When you are rejoicing, it changes the way you imagine certain things, especially imagines whatever kind of disruption you might have with somebody else. As Euodia and Syntyche, Paul hopes and prays, will think of it differently. And so he says, let your reasonableness be known to all. Let your capacity to see a bigger picture calm you down, find your steadiness, be curious about one another's position, and actually respect them as maybe having a position you hadn't imagined right then. Restoration is possible when you can rejoice in something that is bigger than the things that, are, that you're differing over. Rejoicing. What is that about? It is about trusting in what Jesus has done in your past to have an effect on your future. But what about now? Paul says right after this, hey, your names are written in the book of life. The Lord is at hand. Now, some people think he's talking about, like, Jesus is going to show up at any moment. And you know what? It's possible. You know what? It's possible. It's only 1126. 1130, different possibility. Probably not where he's going. He's instead suggesting to this. When it comes to rejoicing in the Lord, you are recalling, you are reflecting on what Jesus has done in your past for the sake of your future. When it says the Lord is at hand, now we're talking about how Jesus is at work in your present for the sake of your good. 
Rejoicing attends to the past for the sake of your future. Something else we do to attend to his present for the sake of our good. And what is that? It's a matter of resisting. Resisting what? The thing that steals our peace. Any number of things that steal our peace. And that thing, you and I know very well as the word anxiety. A lot of you come into this room today with it. And maybe there's this undercurrent that exists in all of us in ways that are unconscious. And in my vocation, we are unfortunately notorious for oversimplifying this question. Automatically saying, if you're anxious, it's because you don't have right beliefs. Look, <clears throat> let's be honest. If you get four hours of sleep three nights in a row, you are a hot, steamy mess of worthless and dangerous. <laughs> Tell me I'm wrong. If you are doom-scrolling all the time and comparing yourself with everybody that you think is more beautiful or smarter or more intelligent or any of that stuff, I'm not surprised that you feel anxious. If you never go outside, if you never get off the couch, I am not surprised if anxiety is true of you. Uh, as my wife likes to say, you can go into PubMed today and pull up 12 studies from the NIH that will come up with 12 different things that are in anxiety-inducing things, practices, chemicals, whatever. It's there. It's there. So, yes, there's a physical thing that you and I have to account for sometimes when it comes to anxiety, no doubt. But you, look, there's an opposite error we have to avoid, too, and say it's all about physical. And I think Paul was appointing and addressing this, too. What is it? What is anxiety? There's a guy named Curtis Chang, wrote a book recently called The, Oper the Anxiety Opportunity. I hadn't read the book. I have read book reviews about it, and then as I plug deeper, probe deeper, he's done interviews with um, Russell Moore and Dan Allender in the last several months, so it's been noted. And he, he kind of comes to an explanation about where anxiety comes from, what it is, why it happens, and he, and he kind of puts it this way. We suffer anxiety because we're vulnerable to losing what we most love. And why anxiety is unavoidable for anyone who is truly human. To be free of anxiety is to be free of any love which is capable of being lost, which in turn would mean becoming inhuman. In other words, anxiety is there because you and I are afraid of something to what we think we're, we, we need that we're going to lose. Anxiety comes from that. Whatever it might be, whoever it might be. You're afraid of losing it, you start to feel, uh, 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 and I can't control that. And Curtis Chang goes on to say that the irony of it is this, when, if, if anxiety comes from things that we're afraid to lose, that we love, what do we naturally do? We try to take steps and measures that prevent losing that thing we love. We'll do anything to not lose that thing. And the irony of it is, when we do that, what he calls avoidance patterns, avoidance strategies, we only multiply our anxiety. We've taken the matter into our own hands. By God, I will not lose that, and I will deploy every strategy I know to prevent that. Because I don't like this feeling of anxiety, but congratulations, you are a co-conspirator in your own anxiety-inducing practice. Let me have Curtis Chang lay it on the table for you about anxiety then, because right now you may feel like, I feel terrible that I feel anxious. Stop it. What does he say? Anxiety itself is not sin in itself. It's an inevitable part of what it means to be humans living in the now and not yet. 
And most avoidance habits, as dysfunctional as they are, are more accurately understood as bad habits than as outright sin. Okay, but, he says, it's possible in some cases that the sin of idolatry can be lurking underneath anxious thoughts. And that's precisely why the author of Psalm 139 asks God to search my anxious thoughts in order to ascertain if there is any idolatrous way in me. What do we most desire not to lose that will take every step we can to prevent its loss, the thing that matters more to us that we think is the ultimate source of our happiness? And in that we feel anxiety, and the more we try to prevent it from happening over and over again or losing it, the more we amplify and multiply our own anxiety. And so Curtis Chang is saying, hey, Psalm 139, great prayer. It's a prayer. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That's a prayer. That's what Paul's telling us to do. How do you resist anxiety? The first thing you do is ask yourself the question, what am I afraid of losing? Start there. You begin by resisting it. Do not be anxious. By asking yourself, what am I afraid of losing? And what am I doing in response of being afraid of losing that? And am I actually multiplying my own anxiety by my strategies to prevent its loss? That's beginning of resisting, but it sure doesn't end there. In fact, it's not even the center of it. What does Paul say? Don't be anxious about anything. But with prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. All of us in this room know what anxiety is at some level, and please, I hope you will not hear me trying to oversimplify your life by saying, if you'll just pray, everything will fix itself. I'm not saying that. Paul's not saying that. But it is worth mining the possibility in prayer that what I most am afraid to lose is the thing that I have most made into something even larger than God. I've done it. I do it. You do too. We resist in that way by asking, stammering, halting, uh, four-second prayers. I don't care. Neither does he. He doesn't, like, where's the eloquence? Why are you ending your prayer with a preposition? <laughs> it's, it's not his thing, man. Cut it out. Stop trying to sound, I don't know, brilliant in your prayer. Just talk. And while you talk, don't forget to give thanks. It's a discipline, and I don't want to in most times. But if you don't, you don't see the bigger picture. Let's be really clear, though, about what Paul is saying. It's not all on you. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God, and then what? And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Passes understanding. Meaning, it's beyond your control. It's beyond your manipulation. It's beyond your just, I'm going to feel peaceful. It's not that. We pray, he's got to move. And it doesn't mean that your circumstances change. But somehow, I don't have to understand it. It's kind of like fusion. And I know stuff happens a lot of times, but I don't know what's going on in you today. The peace of God will keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's his point. That's resisting anxiety. One last toolbox and we're done. One last tool in the toolbox that I've kind of paired up as two things that we're calling um, recalling and rehearsing. 
in verses 8 and 9, he's really clear about how do you face disruption, disorientation, and even the threat of despair. He says, first, don't, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's just, whatever is pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise, think about that. Think about that. When I am dark, what is my default mode? Um, to sip on darkness. Uh, to sip on things that sort of under, that get me, that, that can commiserate with me, but to offer me nothing beyond um, an understanding that, uh, that they know what darkness is too. Paul is suggesting a different approach. Not because he doesn't think you're, he doesn't, he's not thinking you're foolish in that way, but he's like, Stare at what is good. Stare at the person of Jesus who embodies all of this in real time. Her name was Jane Lucretia de Stare. She was 18 when she was widowed in 1815. Whole world turned upside down. She contemplated taking her own life. She's standing on the riverbank thinking of drowning herself. I mean, think, you know, it's a wonderful life, George Bailey and the bridge. She's on the riverbank that's where she is. And she looks across the way in the distance, and there she sees a farmhand plowing. And she wrote about it. Spoiler alert. She says, meticulous, absorbed, skilled, he displayed such as pride in his work that the newly turned furrows looked as finely executed as the paint strokes on an artist's canvas. She stared at excellence and, and beauty and attention and love in a farmhand plowing his fields, and somehow that was more than just a sight of beauty. It was a reason to live. And she goes on to be the great-great-grandmother of Oz Guinness of the Guinness Brewing Company. I know you want to stare at darkness when you feel dark. I get it. I've done it too. I'm just saying, Paul's saying, cut it out. Stare at the beauty and the glory. And while you're doing that, walk in the way of those who have loved you and pointed you to love. Whatever you've heard in me or seen in me, practice these things. Do what I've shown you. Her name is Dr. Alina Berry. She was born in Ufa, Russia, about 17-hour drive from Moscow. She studied law. She moved to America, moved to Dallas, went to Criswell, got a degree in theology, went on to get a PhD in philosophy at Baylor. Her husband, David, was a classmate of ours at Dallas Seminary. They got engaged on our front porch. And on Wednesday, she died, got hit by a car while she was walking. She was a light at the Tory Honors College at Biola University, teaching philosophy, hobnobbing with the likes of deep theologians like Eleanor Stump and others. Elena when I would venture my Russian with her, I, I got to watch her sort of try to sustain a smile as she winced at my grammar. She was a gift to the church. She was a gift to the people that she knows. And she leaves a husband. She's got two twin daughters. She wrote an essay I found that was recently published a couple years ago in the Journal of Psychology and Christianity about humility and despair suggesting that for those of us that ever think about despair, it's worth your time to mine the riches of the early church fathers and mothers, thinking about the whole seven deadly sins tradition. Envy, greed, lust, sloth, avarice, pride, malice. 
that those things might be ancient categories, but they have something to say to us. And what Alina says in that essay that you can read on our sermon resource doc, I posted it for you. She spoke intuitively about what we all know when she said, despair affects an individual on multiple levels from hopeless and helpless thoughts about oneself and the future to feelings of excessive sadness, irritability, and apathy to reckless and self-destructive behavior to a breakdown in the body's functioning. What do you do? Is it just about going on a walk? Is it just about getting enough good sleep? Those will help. Her suggestion, to break free, the person must address the psychological and spiritual roots of her despair. In other words, you can't address it honestly unless you take into account the deep fact that you are more than a body. And her solution, both offering it to therapists and churches and counselors and friends and Bible study groups and elders and deacons and deaconesses and all of that is the way out of despair is that you need to practice things that lead you toward humility among people who love you and can remind you of things that your despair makes you forget of that you might then be oriented to those who are in need of what you have her argument is despair is oftentimes a profound example of self-absorption. I don't have what I want. I didn't get what I want. I will never have what I want. And I will never live up to everything that I should be. And no one can ever forgive me for the wrong things that I've done. That's despair. And so she writes towards the end of the essay, when we despair, we cannot rightly see ourselves or our place in the world. We need someone else to remind us that acknowledging our smallness and inadequacy is the first step we must relinquish our right to judge ourselves and instead submit to God's judgment. In other words, others must show us that our despair is the ultimate form of self-indulgence and help us get over ourselves. A despairing person needs to see that they, like every other human being, have a calling and that this calling is other-oriented. She was a gift to the church to remind us about why the gospel matters more than just your forgiveness. It is to remind you that you are not the center of the universe, it is to offer you opportunities, as this church does and every church should, to get out of yourself and to serve those who are in need of what you have, which your despair is only kind of holding to yourself. That's a picture of what it means. And thank you for indulging me and letting me share with you her gift to you as it relates to this topic. I want to land with a story that's even more poignant than Alina's. Christian de Cherget was a French Catholic monk who lived in Mount Atlas Abbey in Algeria. And he lived with many in that community in the late 90s when Algeria was plagued with civil war. And he knew that probably at some point he would be killed because of who he was. He, they lived among the Islamic community. They loved the Islamic community. They befriended and served the Islamic community. They were a presence in that world for Jesus. But what Christian de Cherget did before he died, in fact, his story, those monks, it was made into a film called Of Gods and Men. You will never hear Swan Lake the same way again when you see that film. He wrote a letter 
to his future assassin. He didn't know who it would be. He just had every expectation that it would be. And he had hoped and prayed that his assassin, whoever that might turn out to be, but might read this letter. And I'm going to read it to you, just parts of it. And then at the very end, you'll see his closing line. But here is a man who I would suggest to you is an embodiment of joy and peace in the Lord. If it should happen one day, and it could be today, that I become a victim of the terrorism which now seems ready to engulf Algeria, I would like my community, my church, and my family to remember that my life was given to God and to this country. I ask them to accept the fact that the one master of all life was not a stranger to this brutal departure. I would ask them to pray for me for how I could be found worthy of such an offering. I ask them to associate this death with so many other equally violent ones which are forgotten through indifference or anonymity. I should like when the time comes to have a moment of spiritual clarity which would allow me to beg forgiveness of God and of my fellow human beings and at the same time forgive with all my heart the one who would strike me down. I could not desire such a death. It seems important to state this. I do not see how I could rejoice if the people I love were indiscriminately accused of my murder. Obviously, my death will appear to confirm those who judge me naive or idealistic. Let him tell us now what he thinks of his ideals. But these persons should know that finally my most avid curiosity will be set free. This is what I shall be able to do, God willing. Immerse my gaze in that of the Father to contemplate with him his children of Islam just as he sees them, all shining with the glory of Christ, the fruit of his passion, filled with the gift of the Spirit whose secret joy is always to establish communion and restore the likeness playing with the differences. And then he closes like this. For this life lost, totally mine and totally theirs, I thank God who seems to have willed it entirely for the sake of that joy in everything and in spite of everything. And also you, my last-minute friend, who will not have known what you were doing. Yes, I want this thank you and this goodbye to be a God-bless for you too, because in God's face I see yours. May we meet again as happy thieves in paradise, if it pleases God, the Father of us both. He didn't start rejoicing in the Lord and swimming to the buoy and resisting anxiety by praying for those things that afflicted him the day before he wrote the letter. It's a life of practicing what Paul is talking about here. It's not easy. On many days it feels foolish and worthless. But the capacity to speak with joy and peace in that, such that you might love the very person that will take your life, Do you not want that? I do. And I need his spirit for that ever to be fashioned in me. So let's pray for that now as we close. Holy Father, I give you thanks for the witness of someone like Christiane Descherges and Dr. Alina Berry, for friends and those we don't know but whose faces we will see and we will shake hands laughing. I ask your strength for whatever is before us, not to compound our struggle or our anxiety with some sort of guilt for why we still have it, but only know that we might stare into your face as one who looks and loves. How else might we know that but by looking at what you did for us on a cross?
We need what we do not have to trust what we cannot see. And so we ask your spirit by his help to grant us what that is in Jesus' name. Amen.